The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Tom Ruggieri. He and his wife, Rebecca Graff, operate Fair Share Farm just outside Kansas City, Missouri. Tom was born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio. He is a graduate of Purdue University and holds both a B.S. and M.S. in engineering. Prior to farming, Tom worked for Eastman Kodak and several engineering firms before meeting Rebecca and settling on her family's farm. Now, since 2004, the farm's main market has been a 130-plus member CSA, which stands for Community Supported Agriculture. Biological methods have been the key to the success of the farm, according to Tom, and we're going to talk about those, including cover cropping, compost, and mineral applications. Tom and Rebecca have increased the soil organic matter on their farm and sequestered over 400,000 pounds of carbon dioxide. The farm fully embraces innovative and new technologies for vegetable farming, including An electric 1948 Alice Chalmers G tractor, which has been converted from gasoline, a solar-powered irrigation system, and a spader-digger tilling system. What's so unique about their CSA and their farm in particular is that in the fall of 2016, a commercial kitchen was constructed on the farm, making Fair Share Farm the Kansas City area's first farm-to-ferment operation. Welcome, Tom. Thanks. Thanks well, for having me. I'm delighted to have you. I, I think it's so important for us in order to eat well and understand how to eat well that we connect with the people who produce our food. And so I'm grateful to have you. I want to ask a question, though. You've had a, a fairly long career, 20 years, in the environmental engineering field. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how your career shifted from engineering to farming. Sure. Well, I guess if I go back, I've always been interested in science. I was 12 years old when we landed on the moon, and at that point, I felt like I spent practically half my life following the space program. You know, I'd read National Geographic and Life Magazine and PBS, and so science was the way I wanted to head. And when I went to Purdue, I ended up becoming an environmental engineer. Now, I don't know if most people know, but the original environmental engineers were actually called sanitary engineers. Mm. And they designed uh, all the sewage treatment plants. And sewage treatment plants for municipal waste are basically big fermenters. So you go down to the plant and there's uh, large concrete tanks and there's piping that has to be engineered. There's air and oxygen that you pump into the tanks and lots of different equipment. And essentially what you do is you have a controlled biomass that degrades the waste in the sewage so that it's safe to put out into a receiving stream. So without even really realizing it, I was kind of into fermentation right when I was in college. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, so I had appreciation for biology. I think that's the main thing. You know, I'm not a microbiologist. I'm not a biochemist. But I think in life, if you 
can learn about something and then appreciate you know, what's actually going on, you can use it more without having to know everything there is to know about it. So when I got out of school, a lot of the treatment plants were built as part of the Clean Water Act. They were already built, and so there wasn't a lot of work to do in that field. I came out of college around the time of Love Canal, so it was a lot of cleaning up of industrial messes. And that was a little less fun and uh, interesting than helping society, so to speak, with uh, you know treating wastewater and making for healthier cities and environments. So from there, engineering really wasn't for me, environmental engineering. And I joined the CSA in the late 90s and kind of saw agriculture as a way to go, and everything was really kind of familiar. There's a microbiome in the wastewater treatment plants. There's really a microbiome in the soil. So all these things are kind of connected. And it was through the CSA I was a member of that I met Rebecca. So she kind of cinched the deal for me to get on the path that we're on. Well, that's fascinating. Now let's talk about CSAs because I'm not sure that all of our listeners understand what they are. I think most consumers still get their food from supermarkets, We've seen from USDA statistics that farmers' markets are increasing quite significantly, but CSAs might be a little bit of a different model. So why don't you explain to us what a CSA is? Okay, CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture. And in the United States, the program kind of developed in the late 80s. The idea is that uh, you join a farm and farm raises your produce, your vegetables for you. In the case of the farm I was a member of, Peacework Organic Farm in upstate New York, um, there was even a requirement to go out and help and participate in the harvest and working on the farm. So that was one thing that intrigued me and I think is an important part of CSA's community is the first word. So it's a way to for people to get a direct connection to their food. At the same time, you pay in advance, at least partially, the farmer to uh, get the crops in in the spring. And so it's, everybody's at the table. You know, you're helping the farmer, the farmer's helping you, and you're really involved in your food production. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that community is the first word. I think what I've witnessed, at least in the food and health world, is that people are really hungriest for relationships and that sense of community. And if we can build that around a food system, which is something that we need daily to survive, I think that's really a beautiful model that we should all be maybe looking at as an alternative to some of the more traditional systems we have in place. You know, it is a great model. Next year will be our 15th year of a CSA, and I believe PeaceWork will be close to their 30th year. And I was a member of a CSA before we became CSA farmers, and it really gave me an appreciation for what that community was. When I go out to the farm, stand around the wash basin, you know, washing carrots or something, and I'd, I'd be able to talk to my fellow members. I mean, I thought I kind of knew a lot about agriculture. As an environmental engineer, I thought I was doing good, but, you know, I'd learned more about food politics and nutrition and all, a lot of things a little bit more in depth. And so that was one nice part about it. Now, Mm -hmm. on our farm, like last year, we have a 31-week season, and there are two days a week when our members come out. So as farmers, we've had our members come out 62 times during the year. Anywhere from 1 to 12 people can be a family with three generations. 
We have some members that have been with us since the start. So you kind of have to experience something like that to really appreciate what a good model it is. Mm-hmm. Well, and I want to let our listeners know that your website for the farm is fairsharefarm.com, and you've got links to what a CSA charter looks like, at least the charter that your farm holds to. Yes. So this year, Elizabeth Henderson got together with a lot of uh, the other CSA farmers and members and some of the pioneers of the movement and developed a, uh, it's called a partner charter for the CSAs. And a lot of people have been trying to define CSAs or do something similar and call themselves CSAs. So this has been a chance for CSA farmers and members to define what we are. And as a farm member, you buy directly from a farm or a group of farm. There's no middleman. You share the risks and reward. That's a big part of the CSA. You know, we don't know what the season's going to be, but if we have a big flush of tomatoes, we divvy it up and hand it out to the members so that you get to partake in a good harvest. The farms nurture biodiversity. The most CSA farms tend to be organic, either certified or using organic practices. And it's a good faith commitment on the parts of both the members and the farmers to keep this going. If you want to be sustainable, you know, one of the legs of the sustainability stool is social, and the community of this really helps keep a farm going. Mm-hmm. Well, the fact that you've had members for the full course of the time that you've been on the farm, 15 years, speaks volumes to the quality of that experience. I want to ask you, though, something about what makes the farm work. So, for example, it's very important for you and your wife to be well. And I'm always curious about how people who basically work independently manage health care. What do you do for health care? Well... Part of it is what we do for a living. They say exercise, get sunshine, eat healthy vegetables and other food, and that's what we do. We do that all the time. I love to cook. I mean, I'm happy to come in after a hard day of work and to cook. I just like doing that. We have what we call partner vendors in our CSA. So there's two dairies, creameries, where members can order cheese that they would get every week We have two meat producers, we have somebody that produces bread, we have our ferments, and we have hens, so we have eggs and our vegetables. So all that comes to us, and then we distribute it to our members. So we're able to have people deliver us pretty much the finest food in the area right to our door as farmers. So that's a big part of it, you know, and just staying healthy by keeping your mind active. It might seem like drudgery, but every day when you go out on the farm, there's something different to see, Mm -hmm. wildlife or what's in the soil, how the plants are growing. And then, yeah, we're able currently to get health care at a price we can afford through the Affordable Care Act. So that helps from the standpoint of insurance in case something does happen. Yeah. It's really important that we have these conversations because 130-plus members are depending on you to produce this healthy food. And, you know, there's not a day that goes by when I'm at my farmer's market, I thank the farmers for keeping me well. If I'm well, it's largely because they are feeding me such nutritious food. But it is really important that we understand what policies nationally either support these relationships or work against us. And 
One of the other issues that I've discovered in addition to personal health care that is harming the ability of people to produce what I call medicinally important foods or medically important foods is drift that is coming from neighboring farms. So let's talk about your environment there. You're near Kansas City. You've got, I'm sure, some industrial-type farms, probably some commodity-based farms that are using genetically engineered seeds, seeds that have been engineered to withstand spraying. What does it look like from your farm in terms of risk from drift? Yeah, so we're on Rebecca's family farm, and we're in kind of one almost in the corner of it. And we're pretty fortunate from a farm standpoint in that Rebecca's father manages the rest of the farm. And in 2012, through the Natural Resources Conservation Service, there was a program to put in native grasses for biomass production. And so we are now surrounded after five years of mowing and burning and management with basically a prairie. Mm. So we have a buffer right around our vegetable production. So that's helped us. I mean, there's farms farther out, but being on our our own farm, we've also, the Missouri Department of Agriculture has a program called Drift Watch. So we've registered the farm and mapped it so that anybody who's spraying is aware that we're there. We have uh, sensitive crop signs that we put up. So there's different things that you can do. It's like the best insurance is to try and do the things in place so that nothing happens in the first place. So those are some of the things that we've been doing to see that that doesn't happen. And then, yeah, GMOs, what we see sometimes, and it's hard to tell, but we spray what's called BT, Bacillus thuringiensis. It's an uh, organic-approved biological spray. It's a bacteria that will be ingested by cabbage worms, and they die. And it's the same thing that BT corn, the GMO corn, emits constantly. So we have to worry about our biological sprays not working because of the GMO crops that might make these worms so that it doesn't work. Right. That's interesting, right? They'll become resistant to it. Yeah. Let me take one break because we're at the halfway mark, and I need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are joined today by Mr. Tom Ruggieri. He and his wife, Rebecca Graff, operate Fair Share Farm just outside of Kansas City, Missouri. It is a part of a community-supported agriculture program where members are a part of the farm invested in what Tom and his wife Rebecca are doing. Well, I want to also get back to the drift issue because I know in an earlier conversation you had mentioned that you had seen some leaf curl, and I know that you mentioned that you have signs for sensitive crops, tomatoes, for example, being one. What do you do when you see that leaf curl, meaning that there has been a, you know, not enough to maybe kill the plant, but enough to say, you know, give you a wake-up call that, hey, there has been some drift occurring, and how will that impact your ability to produce as much food? Well, at this point, it hasn't been something that we've really seen very often, mm-hmm. and it's kind of a new thing to even look for. You know, we're realizing that as certain herbicides don't work and chemical-based agriculture is switching, that we now have to start being on the lookout for this. We have to start learning how to even identify whether there are any issues out there. So for us right now, a lot of it is 
learning what to look for. Right. Who knows what we need to look for next year. So we're kind of at that stage. And then we have a blog and a Facebook page. So if we start seeing anything that's significant around our crops, that we will be able to communicate to our membership what's going on and get them more aware of what's going on in the industrial farming world and how it can be affecting us. You know, I think that that right there sums up the impact of the community part of community-supported agriculture. Because you have so many families dependent upon you for their nourishment, that you've got this communication tool so that if something happens that would threaten that relationship and threaten everyone's access to this healthy food, you can work together as a larger community with a larger voice to let representatives know that this is an issue and that we need perhaps better policy controls so that we don't have contamination and crop damage. Yeah, it's definitely true. And like I say, you know, we don't know what's coming down the, the pike here. So we have to just, you know, it's another part of our job description now is to keep track of the development of herbicides. Yeah. You know, that's not our field. Right. Right. Well, one of the things that you're doing on the farm that I want to promote and talk about, 2017 was designated by the American Public Health Association the year of climate and health. And we have seen some deadly storms as a result of climate change. Carbon sequestration is something that farmers can do to help protect the planet, to help decrease the negative effects of climate change. Tell us what carbon sequestration is and how it works on your farm. Sure. So when a plant grows through photosynthesis, it takes carbon dioxide out of the air and turns it into the plant material. And it's called, you're fixing carbon is what they they would say. And when the plant dies, that carbon is then released back into the atmosphere. If you've ever seen an inconvenient truth, there's a little graph where they show, I mean, you can almost see that the earth is breathing, that know, depending on the season, either carbon dioxide's going down because it's turning the plant matter or it's rising because everything's decomposing. So what we do, we grow cover crops. So an example of a cover crop might be oats and peas. It's actually the same thing that people would eat. And we grow it to the point where it's not fruit, but they start flowering, which in the case of the legumes like peas means there's a lot of nitrogen that's available. And then we mow those down and we turn them into the ground. So we've sequestered them. And if you do that enough, there's always some residue that's left that is carbon that will actually stay in the soil. So they say, like with compost, you have the living, the dead, and the very dead. And the very dead is the the humus in the soil. And that's where you have carbon that will stay in the soil and not decompose. So in terms of over the years, you have seen changes in your soil, and you sent me a wonderful list of fair share farm carbon management calculations. And you show carbon sequestration, you show how much you've increased the organic matter in the soil. How do you measure this? So you collect samples in an area. So you might collect six, eight samples over an area that you want to measure you send it into a lab, and essentially what they do is they take the sample, once it's dry, and they weigh it, and then they put it in an oven 
at a high temperature, and anything that's carbon will be burned off. And then they weigh it again, and that tells you pretty much how much carbon or organic matter was in the sample. So by doing that, they can tell. And they say it takes 100 years to build an inch of topsoil. So that's basically what we're doing. We're trying to add organic matter and make, basically make topsoil. And it's a very long process. And if you don't really keep at it, your organic matter will decrease. It's like a fire. You know, if you keep tilling the soil and not adding anything to it, you're just going to burn it up. Mm-hmm. I looked at the tables that you have with organic matter changes on your farm, and it was quite impressive to see just how effective your farm management skills are. What does that mean in terms of the produce that comes from that soil that is loaded with this organic matter? Yeah, so we like to say you are what you eat, so you are what your plants eat. So what we're doing is feeding our plants other plants. I mean, that's just the natural system. The chemical-based agriculture, you're feeding the plant corrosive synthetic chemicals. It's almost like feeding your plant intravenously, you know, or a liquid diet. It's like what you do when somebody's sick. You know, everything's soluble. It's just a soluble chemical versus turning under cover crops and other organic matter, which is more like eating solid food, and we're feeding it to the soil. The other thing we say is the soil is the stomach of the plant. So if you feed the soil, which is the stomach, it'll degrade and decompose the organic matter and provide the nutrients to the plant. So the soil has its own microbiome. People have been talking a lot about the human microbiome right now, which is great. And I think it's important that not miss the fact that there's a microbiome in the soil. So it's, you know, you don't want to separate all these things out. It's all one thing. That's where we, at our farm, we, we feel like, for us at least, we've kind of unified all this because now we have the fermentation too, which the ferment has its own microbiome, and it's all tied together. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really a magical system. And I always have a little bit of apprehension when I hear about changes that we're making so quickly without maybe fully thinking through all of the unintended consequences. Yeah. You know, what we're doing is like the oldest thing in the book. It's fundamental. It's natural. One point I've been trying to make to people in describing what we do is that equivalency is given to chemical farming and biological farming. You know, you say, okay, well, let's measure a a lettuce that was done organically and chemically and see they're they're basically the same. That uh, doesn't take into account the fact that they are inherently different. I mean, they shouldn't even be compared. You know, you're not comparing apples and apples or apples and oranges. You're comparing apples and synthetic chemicals. They're two totally different systems. And so that... I think people's minds are completely clouded to how that equivalency isn't there. And I think that's a very important point. Mm -hmm. Well, we are so driven by yield that we fail to recognize that it's not just about quantity, but it's very much about quality. And maybe we wouldn't need so much to get the same amount of beneficial nutrients if we were producing more for quality and less for quantity. Yes. So if you go to our website, there's a tab for carbon sequestering, and it shows our soil data over the years. The Rodale Institute has conducted a 30-year study where they have side-by-side 
organic and conventional agriculture plots. And they've shown in this 30-year study that the organic plot can produce just as much as the so-called conventional plot. And then the benefits are enormous as far as water retention, ability to have the plants grow well during a drought, the reduced use of fossil fuels. And I look at our farm. We've been doing this 15 years, and we were able to show what we've achieved. What if we were a farm, and we started in the 70s, when the USDA said, get bigger, get out, and we had 40 or 50 years of soil building. I have, in Brodale, shown it could um, be a more effective and just as high-yielding system, but those studies haven't been done, and except by kind of private private concerns. Mm-hmm. You know, you brought up a really good point, which is this notion of get big or get out. You're feeding 130-plus members with your farm, and we're always pressured by these messages from the industrial system that says, oh, my gosh, our population is increasing. We've got to increase production to feed this growing world. And the way we've been taught that that's going to happen is by getting big or getting out. So can we feed the world with these smaller CSAs? And is that even the question we should be asking? Well, I think that we can feed the world with biological farming versus synthetic chemical-based farming. For us, it's the, the fact that we have a community, I think, is important. That helps. But, you know, you also need some large farms that might specialize in something and just produce a lot of squash or just one product. It doesn't just all have to be a CSA farm. But the whole idea that we're advancing society by feeding them food based on an artificial system, I think, that's just, a, you know, go back to the drawing board right away with that. That's just the wrong way to go. Absolutely. Well, and I think the biodiversity piece that you have on your farm is truly a testament to resiliency. At least that's what the folks who know about true sustainability say, is that if we want to survive into the future, we have to reclaim biodiversity, and the species loss that we've been witnessing is extremely damaging to our survival on the planet. Absolutely. Diversity is what tempers everything. We have a diversity of crops. That's one of the things with the CSA. You grow a lot of different crops, and you might not have a good tomato crop one year, but you might have a great pepper crop or carrot crop or onion crop. So, you know, we could never guarantee that every crop would grow well in a year, but if you plant enough, you'll be able to have a good yield at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. And then to have biodiversity around the farm just helps with pest management, disease, all sorts of things. I mean, the worst thing you can do is to kind of hone down to one organism in a system and expect to be able to control it. I mean, it's pretty much known that that's just a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you, Tom, unfortunately our time is up, but I, I want to just give you one quick opportunity to leave our listeners with a message or a charge. Well, find a CSA in your area and and join it, I would think, would be one of them. And and the other is don't allow anybody to equate so-called conventional farming with organic farming because uh, that discussion doesn't deserve to get off the ground. 
All right. Well, I will direct our listeners to your website so they can learn more about you and your wife. That's fairsharefarm.com. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Tom Ruggieri. He and his wife, Rebecca Graff, are the operators of Fair Share Farm just outside Kansas City. Thank you so much for your time, Tom. Yeah, thanks for having me. Mm-hmm.